Good morning. Today's reading is from Ephesians 3, 1 through 13. Hear the word of the Lord. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, and has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, through, though I am the very least of the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ, and to bring light for everyone that, what is in the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Good morning, good morning. Why don't we pray together, shall we? God, thank you for the richness of your word. Just hearing this extraordinary news read over us, how it has been read by your people, for your people, for over 2,000 years, and just the ways that you continue to care for your people and work through your word. God, may this news, the truth and the beauty of this glorious gospel and what you're doing in the church, may it continue to carry forward your purposes. And by the power of your spirit, may we be more who you've called us to be. Thank you, God, for bringing us to this place and carrying all the things that we've carried with us into this place, the weights, the worries, the concerns, the frustrations, the joys that even sometimes can be so great that they're hard to carry. We just thank you that in all these ways, you're ministering to us as embodied creatures before you. God, we love you. Thanks for loving us first, and thanks for loving us always. It is in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen, amen. amen. Well, we've, I think everybody in this room has probably heard the phrase at some point or another, you know, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? Which, I don't know, I just started doing like an imaginative journey, and I imagine some cantankerous librarian somewhere trying to convince kids to go to different sections of the library, um, and then eventually one of those kids who had a wonderful discovery became a philosopher and then extended it to broader aspects of life. 
Remember when that librarian said, there's wisdom there, right? You, you can't fully judge a book by its cover. And yet we do it all the time. We are compulsive when it comes to quick judgments as human beings. And part of that has to do with our brain. Part of that has to do with um, things that happen again and again. We start to be more natural in assuming so that we can focus our brain power, our mental and physical energy towards new things. There are physiological reasons for that. There are psychological reasons for that. But that's not what I'm here to talk about <laughs> this morning. Actually, what I'm here today and what we see in this text is kind of surprising. And because here's the deal, as human beings, we all have to come to conclusions. Nobody necessarily is excited about being labeled or becoming a judgmental person. And yet we all have to make judgments in life. This is part of being human. You've got to make decisions. You can come to a fork in the road and you've got to choose left or right. You are making a judgment. You're coming to a conclusion. And even, here's what I would, I'm going to go ahead and propose to you. Even if we have more time, and even when we have even more facts, we can often come to faulty conclusions. Let's say you go down the right path and you're, you're taking extra time. You're making sure, exploring all the facts. You're listening to counter perspectives, but eventually you've got to come to a conclusion. So for example, Let's imagine, if you can just join me for an imaginative journey. I was going to do a prop, but I didn't think that would necessarily be helpful for our team. I want you to imagine a pile of garbage, okay? <laughs> I thought that would be very sensory engaging, smells and disgust, all the different dynamics that show up, but I also thought that that wouldn't be kind, so I decided not to do that. So imagine a pile of garbage in your neighborhood. Maybe it's in front of this one house, maybe it's if you live in a loft a building, it's down in the lobby and you have to pass it every time you come through the entryway and it smells like there are certain things in that garbage that just turn your stomach. And, and now narratives have started going out, right? You go to the homeowners association or the building association and people are like, have you seen that pile of garbage? You know, yeah, so-and-so's kid, you know, he was out playing and he fell in the garbage. Oh, he fell in the garbage? You know, suddenly it becomes like a neighborhood nuisance. Rats are gathering around the garbage. Everybody is pretty convinced that there's only one thing this can be. And your anger begins to boil over the person who's pulled together these randomly discarded items and left it in that one place where everybody can see. And you're wondering, my goodness, this is garbage. It's a done deal. That's all it is. But... After many conversations, after much exploration, after you know, your own inquisitive kind of engagement, what if that pile of discarded used items is more than you thought? Now, for some, when it comes to the church, that's how they see the church. For some, that's how they've, even to some point, to a certain point, this is how some people view faith. And there are reasons for that. Everybody's got their stories. Everybody's got their histories. Everybody's got their pains, their wounds, their quote-unquote facts. But there are a lot of different people who've come to the conclusion that the church is nothing more than a mess. And for many people in this room, you have family members and friends who see the church as nothing more than an organization that is an eyesore on the broader community development of, hu of human flourishing. And maybe in your honest moments, in those dark spaces where you have your deepest doubts, you want to nod 
and agree. And so we find ourselves in a world rife with deconstructing faith and the church and the life with God. And, and as I've said before, listen, and as we said in a deeper and fuller way in the very first sermon in this broader series, there's something that's really healthy about that. When you are handed something to, to instead receive it blindly, even the Apostle Paul encourages the Bereans in another passage in another scenario in the book of Acts saying, good, you're going back to the scriptures. You're looking for yourself. Don't just trust me because I have authority. See what God has spoken throughout generations in his word. Yes, yes, yes. There's something healthy about that. But my hope today is however you see the church, my hope is that today we have a fresher vision on how God sees the church. And if we have any hope of reconstructing faith, which is our series as we walk through this brilliant letter to the church in Ephesus. We need to listen and learn from people who don't share all of our biases. We need to listen and learn from people who don't have the same exact experiences as us and yet are still human beings with many of the same questions. Someone and someones who know better than you and me, who know best God's design for the church and for us as human beings. And for us, that companion, that friend, that guide, that has been the Apostle Paul in the letter to the church or the various churches, local churches in Ephesus guided by the Holy Spirit. And so what we're going to see today, at least what I hope we see together, guided by the Spirit and his word, is not just what we feel about the church, not just what we've seen in the church, but what God sees when he looks at the church. And the Apostle Paul, he likens to what he now sees in line with what God sees as a mystery, something that was hidden, something that was veiled, that, that nobody saw coming, but now revealed. Like, that is the language. And here we see that God's word sheds light on the church in ways, frankly, we all need to see more brilliantly. So let's take a look together. Would you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 3? Ephesians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we've got some Bibles there on the back table we'd love for you to take just as a gift from us. But I hope, I hope, I hope as we're walking through this letter, you are actually kind of following along in your own Bibles. You're taking some notes in there, okay? This this book is beautiful and it's rich, but I hope you know you can write in it too. Don't take your notes as serious as God's word, but <laughs> like, oh, that's what God meant. Um, but still, take it as an opportunity to kind of capture your memories, what God is saying to you in this space and in this time, okay? And as we step into our passage here in Ephesians 3, you'll notice, once again, this word mystery keeps showing up. You see in verse 3, the apostle Paul says, the mystery was made known to him personally, by a revelation. So God revealed to Paul personally. Then when you get to verse 4, he says he has a unique insight into this mystery. He's got a, a unique comprehension and understanding of this insight. And then when you get to verse 6, now the word mystery in Greek doesn't show up there, but the logical flow, which is why our translation has there, this mystery is, we find the very definition of what the mystery is that the Apostle Paul is talking about. And here's the mystery. It is God's hidden plan from before creation. It's hidden, and it makes it so drastically surprising because nobody was expecting this to happen. 
The Apostle Paul had a clear understanding. He had a thought as to how God was going to work in the world through the Jewish people. He had no framework for how God was actually going to do this. Not that God had not spoken about it, but people had not connected the dots in this way. It was hidden. And the Apostle Paul says he was given special access to this. There's a really good uh, chance that while he experienced Jesus Christ resurrected on the road to Damascus, Jesus gave him an initial insight into this plan. You go to the book of Acts chapter 9, you see how Jesus' power just like is directed towards him and it sends him on this trajectory as to if Jesus is the Messiah, how does God indeed work in the world? Because what I thought, Jesus would have never fit into those categories, but if he is alive, that means my categories were wrong, not Jesus was wrong. And it reorients everything. Which is here's something that's really fun when you're reading your Bibles, especially some of these New Testament letters. Go back to the book of Acts. This is a good Bible reading help. See where they fit within the broader narrative of the early church. The book of Acts is the Acts of the Apostles, where God now in Christ is seated on the throne up in heaven, and he's working through his apostles, his leaders, carrying out the continued movement of the church. And see how the letters fit there, and see the beautiful history unpack and how it continues to play one off, to, one off of another. But here's the mystery. It's that these Gentiles, that God is after the Gentiles just as much as he's after the Jewish people, that he's after the whole world, not just Jewish people, but everyone. That's who Jesus is after. That's who God declares and longs to be a part of his family. Everyone. And the Apostle Paul is not the only one who gets this. Now, like, if there's one person who's like, all of history has been wrong, and then it's only, like, one person, and you're like, hey, what's going on? Even the Apostle Paul, with all of his authority, understood there was an importance of the church collective. And so if you go over to the book of Acts again, you see this experience with the Apostle Peter in Acts chapter 10, goes to the house of a Gentile, Cornelius, and suddenly the spirit falls and his categories are blown because the spirit is just as alive in a different culture of God-fears, those who are still upholding the Hebrew scriptures and God's morality and dynamics and seeking to see Jesus as the true Messiah. But they don't have to become Jewish to have the spirit of God alive in them. And so Peter's categories are blown. And then later you see in the book of Acts, the church comes to a unified understanding of how God is working to also include all people, not just the Jewish people. And then the Apostle Paul, he reminds the church in Ephesus, as we said in verse 6, he says, This is the mystery, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The plan includes... And this is, this is, it's hard for me to overstate this. The plan includes the unclean ones. For many Jewish people, they couldn't even touch a Gentile. They were seen as unclean. The food they ate, the, the cultural practices they engaged were unclean. But now, in Jesus, in the most intimate of spaces, in Christ is both Jew and Gentile. Oneness. The same kind of oneness you experience in marriage is now realized in the family of God. No matter one's background, 
So it doesn't matter whether you're Jew or non-Jewish, no matter what continent you come from, whether it's Africa, whether it's Asia, whether it's Europe, whether it's from one of the Americas, on and on, we are all one family in Christ. And in many ways, if you were here with us last week, this is a continuation of this radical vision and reality of the church that he was detailing out in chapter 2, that Jesus has already accomplished in the cross. This isn't something we have to make happen. Jesus has made happen. We need to realize it and embrace it. It's a category. You, you don't work hard enough to make the church good enough. Jesus made the church. We just need to see it and lean in. And this mystery, it has been revealed, hidden for generations past. Even as he says up in verse 5, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations at his, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. So there is something that has been hidden that, yes, yes, God had promised to Abraham that he was going to bless the nations through Abraham and his nation for all the world. Yes, yes, but now the family of God, including the Gentiles, feels like another leap in the imaginative frame as to what God is doing. And it makes things really complicated, which is why when you get to Ephesians chapter four, let's just forecast this. Why is he talking about unity so much? <laughs> because you've got people from different cultural backgrounds, different statuses, different genders, and they're all trying to be a family together. And that means, hey, the way you do things isn't the way I do things. And we're wrestling through how to do these things together. Unity, unity. That's why Paul keeps harping on it, because this is an insane community. <laughs> with so many differences, and he's bringing them together, this countercultural, messy, and some might even say foolish idea. And many will still say that today. The church can look like a foolish mess. <laughs> it really can. And listen, it's, it's hard, once again, to to step back into some of these cultural frames and to feel what people felt, to imagine what people imagined. But Romans and Jewish people alike would have looked at the church where you have this intermingling, this cross-cultural dynamic, and they'd have said, that's never going to last. It's just not going to work. They're just too different. And some of the early Christians wrestled through it too. You know, I mentioned Peter in Acts chapter 10. Well, it's also Peter, when you get to this letter written to the church in Galatia, where the Apostle Paul has to step up and be like, hey, Peter, you're saying over here that Jews and Gentiles are one in Christ, but then when you get together for dinner parties, you act like they're second-class citizens. Stop it, Peter. Peter's like, oh, my bad, right? <laughs> He's learning. He's growing in his cross-cultural awareness and dynamics. The gospel, by the power of the Spirit, guiding him in sanctification, making him more whole and holy and understanding and realizing this mystery now revealed. So it's difficult even for these early Christians. And this is a difficulty in every culture and in every generation. Every culture, every generation. It wasn't a one and done like, oh, since we figured out the Jew-Gentile thing, we'll never have issues again. No, it actually may not be here in Kansas City and in downtown Kansas City when we think about this particular principle that God's bringing together who were once enemies and now calling them family and saying, you gotta get along. The enemies may look a little bit different in our cultural context. But he's always doing that work, pulling together the most absurd of opposites <laughs> and saying, you're now siblings. This is what he does 
in the gospel. You know, it was a couple years ago now, um, and I was at a congregational meeting, what we had last Sunday, uh, for those who are members of Christ's community. And um, someone who'd been a part of the downtown campus for a long time, who'd struggled with bouts of homelessness here and there, he came up to me uh, after the congregational meeting was over, and I'll never forget what he said. He's like, you know, on paper, we shouldn't know each other, right? <laughs> Doctors, lawyers, businessmen, and me. It doesn't make sense. And yet here we are. This is the church. It doesn't make sense. Like, people don't naturally choose those kinds of categories to make their best friends and, and to be a part of a family and then to fight to be with and for one another. And the world looks on in that and says, there's no way that's going to work. There's no way that's going to survive. And it's just an extraordinary mystery that's now been revealed. And, and, and for many, the church just still looks like utter foolishness. Let me give you a couple examples um, on how that still takes shape uh, today. Um, Michael Emerson, he is a devout follower of Jesus um, and a uh, sociologist. He's written two books uh, that are really well known within uh, church circles when it comes to um, uh, various reconciliation or conciliation efforts. Divided by Faith has basically become a classic. You saw this maybe in our blog, not this last Saturday, but the Saturday before if you're getting our weekly update. This was one of the books we put, put forward as one of our resources to be reading and continuing to grow. That's one of his oldest works. Another one of his works that follow that is United by Faith. And there you see um, some other theologians and sociologists and experts kind of working together. And what he did now is he's on kind of this next journey, and he did a national study, a national study. He had over 300 folks partnering with him and doing these studies. I mean, this guy is a brilliant sociologist who has a deep passion to actually catalyze unity in the church that has been divided for generations here in this country. And let me just name a couple of his findings in some of his most recent research. Now here, and, and listen, there's a lot more, but I'm just going to give you four slides of it, okay? Because it's pretty daunting. <laughs> just, uh, so slide one, here we have, um, he did, is, is this broad poll, and he actually surveyed white uh, Christians. Um, he would call them practicing Christians, and he has categories for that. Um, black practicing Christians, broader minority uh, practicing Christians, and then he also surveyed a lot of white uh, uh, non-Christians to kind of compare um, some groups here. But in, in 2000 or 2019, late summer, he asked, they kind of did some surveys and things, and they said the United States, asked this question, the United States has a race problem. And this was the percentage of folks that agreed, okay? So 38% of practicing white Christians agreed that uh, there was a race problem in the United States, and 78% of practicing black Christians uh, believe that there is a race problem in the United States. Now, some pretty significant things happened in 2020. <laughs> George Floyd and others, uh, and some dynamics marches and conversations. Now, you would think, in the midst of all of that, certain assumptions about where these trends are going, but here's what was fascinating. The late summer of 2020, if you look in the next slide, the United States has a race problem. White practicing Christians went down 8% and actually thinking that there's a problem. And practicing black Christians went up almost 10%. So the divide on how we're seeing the same things 
with racial dynamics here in the States, with those who are actually practicing, seeking to understand what God's word has to say about their cultural dynamic. There's even a greater divide today than there was a couple years ago. Okay, let's go to the next slide. Here is something else that was fascinating. They did a survey. Generations of slavery and discrimination have created conditions that make it difficult for African Americans to work their way out of the lower class. Here's what was fascinating. A majority of all groups, including non-Christian whites, so this is all minority groups uh, that are practicing Christians, and non-Christian whites agreed, except for one group, white practicing Christians. Now, you'll notice he is a white practicing Christian, so that he knows himself. Okay, so where 60% uh, disagreed, actually, with that statement of white practicing Christians. And we'll go to one more slide. Um, there's only one Christian group that does not believe that race relations can be improved by teaching about race in the church, white practicing Christians. Two-thirds believe this is not the answer. Okay, now, there is a whole lot of other dynamics, and his hope for bringing this up is actually to name the brutal facts. Where are we in the conversation, okay? What was the result out of this as he's seeking to both guide us, and then he had some helpful steps on how we're coming together. What was the result? He had a lot of white Christians send him death threats via email. Because that's what Jesus would do. This is extremely, this, any more, friends, you would think that this would be easier. Like the, 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 the philosophy and the way that the West sees the world is progress, right? Pro everything's getting better. If we just educate, people will get better. But it's not just about education. And it's not just a one-generational battle. Every generation in the midst of the morality and the things we want, not just the things we know, but the things that we want, are constantly at war. And you would think that it would go further. The progress is up, you know, whenever you look at charts, right? Well, here we go. Let me do it from your perspective. Charts, right? It goes to the right and up. Progress. That's what progress looks like on a, on a chart. But instead, we're seeing regression, not progress. And so, of course... The idea that there could be such a thing as a church where people with different ethnicities and different cultural backgrounds that also include white practicing Christians feels more and more foolish than it even did 10 years ago. How is that a possibility? And so if that's one religious pushback to the mystery that has actually been revealed here in Ephesians, that's maybe, once again, a religious pushback um, misguided or maybe having a faulty foundation as to what we put our hope in or how God has designed the church. There's also a secular uh, perspective that sees the church as a fool's errand as well. It's in the very fact around human sexuality. The idea that the church can actually show up, can befriend, can sacrifice, can stand alongside, and even call family... Our brothers and sisters who identify as LGBTQ, who have a different orientation, but have also embraced Jesus's sex ethic, the only sex ethic that's actually on display in scripture, that honors our bodies, honors our communities, and honors our God, that sex is within marriage between one man and one woman. That is the only place sex is actually good for all. There's tons of sociology and how it impacts kids, community, identity, 
on and on, but we want our freedom. Now, there's this whole framework that if we actually have a community that has, that's made up of heterosexual married couples or heterosexual singles who are pursuing celibacy as they're waiting for marriage, if that's what God has for them, or the calling of singleness, or sisters and brothers who are in the LGBTQ kind of experience, who have a different experience of orientation and dynamics, but are embracing Jesus' sex ethic. The fact that we would be one family by our secular culture is a fool's errand. It will never last and it'll never work. Two things. The cultural script is affirmation is love. Lack of affirmation is hate. Therefore, if the church shows up and sacrifices, even for someone they disagree with, if they are outside of the church or hold a different understanding of sex ethic, then that is no way love. That's manipulation. Or... And these are the folks that I feel for the most, those who are in the LGBTQ community who are embracing Jesus' sex ethic, but also being honest about their experience. The broader cultural script is, you are inauthentic, you're hurting the movement, how dare you say no to yourself? And then the church is like, well, I don't know if you can belong here. Often. But the very idea that, that the church could be a place where we're walking with Jesus together, seeking to follow his way, even though we may have different experiences and call each other sister and brother rather than keeping each other in arms. The world says that will never last. That's the secular pushback as to why the church is foolish. Once again, show me anywhere else in scripture where there's another sex ethic and I can't, I can't see it. And our world says it's absolutely foolish and idiotic. So it may look foolish that we have this mysterious community made up of different ethnicities, different cultures, different orientations, different marital status, but all one in Jesus. And the world looks on, and even some religious people who have misguided conceptions as to what the church ought to be look on and say, this is foolish, it will never last. Truly, it is a mystery that has been hidden for ages past. <laughs> but still feels like a mystery to so many. But here's what Paul has to say in the midst of this mess. Listen to this. Even though we look foolish, we are God's wisdom. <laughs> I'm telling you, this passage was absolutely astounding to me, friends, because the Apostle Paul sees this as a grace gift that he's received. To be able to reveal this mystery, to actually proclaim it, and to tell that those who were once the outcasts are now belonging because of Jesus. Those that were once untouchable are now known as lovable and even more called the beloved. And so why does he say this is a gift? Look with me, verse 10. Check this out. So that through the church, the manifold, the many-sided wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Check this out, friends. <laughs> we constantly are just thinking about the person who's in the cubicle at work, and that is an important person to be thinking about. But when the Apostle Paul is thinking about the church, that seems so foolish to so many people, whether it be, yes, ancient Jewish people who believed that Gentiles had to become Jewish to assimilate to Judaism in order to finally and fully belong to God's kingdom. And Paul's like, no, you can be fully Jewish or you can be fully Gentile and still embrace Jesus and his ways and his ethic, but you don't have to culturally all be the same. Or 
In the midst of all of this, he's saying, listen, this may seem utterly foolish, and everybody's saying it may not work. But this is God's wisdom. And it's not only just proclaiming it to the people who are looking on. Somehow, in the heavenly realms, somehow the rulers and dominions, the powers that he's been talking about throughout all of this are watching. When no one else is watching, they're watching. You're not just on a a, a stage for the world to see or for one another to see. You're on the stage. God is presenting us, this church, this mess. as like his wisdom. This is what I was going to do. This is how I'm making everything right. It's hard for me to overstate again just how absurd this is. When when the entire creation, when the entire order, whether it be the spiritual realm from demons to angels and everything in between, when all of the created order reckons at what God has done that displays his brilliance and his beauty and his wonder and his wisdom, creation doesn't look at the microbes, they don't look at atoms, they don't look at the splendor of the universe. The Apostle Paul is saying what displays the manifold wisdom of God is you and me, the church. Because to the rest of the world, it doesn't make any sense. We are his Sistine Chapel. We are his Beethoven's fifth. We are his masterpiece. And you may be saying, no way. I've been a part of church. I know. I'm here to say yes way. This is how God sees the church. When we are invited to belong to his people and so belong to Christ, we are invited to be participants in the mystery of God and what he's doing in the world. When we gather in community groups, when you're gathering to pray, when you're serving in children's ministries, please serve in children's ministries, okay? This is not a place for all the announcements, but you get it. when we gather for our class, church for Monday, when we gather here and we're singing songs and we're actually hearing God's word read over us, reminding us that my news station isn't my authority, my conversation with my friend isn't my authority, this is my authority even over me. And so when it chafes against me, I say, that's life. So I'm gonna chase after life rather than being content with death, even though it feels more comfortable. And then all of the universe is looking on and saying, why is so-and-so sitting next to so-and-so? Does this person know this person's story? How can this culture actually be collaborating with this culture? How can this person in this socioeconomic status be loving this person in this socioeconomic status? And they're looking on going, how is this even possible? God must be doing it. That's the only explanation. It doesn't just happen. It's foolishness to the world, but it's wisdom from God. Now I want you to go back to that pile of trash. (laughs) And there it is. Okay, so I want you to imagine you walk by in the middle of the night and someone shines light on that garbage. You thought you knew everything about that garbage. You thought you knew how much it smelled, how much it reeked. You thought you could tell the whole story and then someone shines a light and you realize it's a sculpture, something you would have never seen before that shows something brilliant in the back of the light. Tim Noble and Sue Webster or among what would be called like shadow artists who often use discarded or unforeseen items 
to make brilliant sculptures that are only visible when the light shines. That's the church. The rest of the world looks on and says, this place smells. I know so-and-so's kid fell into that place. <laughs> Your friends might be thinking that's just a full, foolish pile of rubbish. Eventually, we will progress out of the very need for churches. And then God just keeps shining his light. And he says, oh, no, I'm making something. I'm doing something. And it tells a better story about the sculptor more than it does just the items in the pile, right? You know what Paul wants us to know in the midst of this passage where he ends after all of this? He says, I just don't want you to, I know it can feel like your foolishness to the world and it may feel foolish to even yourself at times, but don't lose heart. That's where he ends, verse 13. Because for 2,000 years, listen, for 2,000 years, people thought this was a foolish idea. For 2,000 years, people said it would never last. And God just laughs. And maybe you and I, in our darkest moments, with our deepest of doubts, think that the church is done, it's over. And we think, God, we can't. And he goes, of course not, but I can. And I have, for over 2,000 years, continued to maintain the church in different continents, in different countries, among different cultures, still with the similarity of my word, guiding them in truth. And no matter how weak or fragile we may feel, God continues to work. Why? And this is important, because God always works through messy weakness. That's how he does things. I mean, look at Paul. This is where we're going to end. He, he defines himself as a prisoner. Did you see how absurd that is? He's in a Roman prison cell saying, Jesus is one. <laughs> you crazy, Paul. <laughs> Jesus is one. Oh, and he's writing all these small little local churches, and he's like, and you're how he's going to keep extending his victory. And you have no idea the honor-shame society being imprisoned like that when he was at the topper echelon of society as a Pharisee is akin to death. And here he is saying, I'm going to hold fast. I'm going to choose celibacy as a single person because I believe that Jesus has called me to be single, to actually further his purposes. And I'm, and I'm, going, to, I'm going to further them. And I'm in prison, but actually Jesus is one. And listen, when he says, don't lose heart at my suffering, he's not like, oh, Jesus, or Paul's like, the king is silver linings. No, 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 no. So don't pick that up from this text because that's not what this is. This is not a silver lining theology. What Paul is saying is, God wins through death. He always has. That's a part of the mystery. He wins through a cruciformed life. When the rest of the world looked at Jesus and they saw a loss, Jesus was like, this is how I win. I'm going to go to the cross and I'm going to put the final nail in the coffin of death and then I'll rise again. And this is what the apostle Paul subscribes to. I'm in prison. So that must mean God's doing something because he works through death. And so if I'm nearing death and he's really working. And so when he looks at the church and he sees all these different cultures and he sees different genders and they're wrestling and he's pursuing unity. He's like, listen, sometimes you're going to have to die to yourself to actually pursue Jesus's way. And if you're never dying to yourself, heads up, you're probably not following Jesus. And I can't say that clear enough for everyone, regardless of whatever status you have. There is a part in your life where it will feel like a cross, where it will really make your life uncomfortable. It will cost you a whole lot. And therefore, someone who feels like they have a cultural tension and they're saying, this is costing me a lot. Why don't I see other Christians? It's because you're not acknowledging the cost that's actually real in your life. Beware. 
What you do also is a display to your brother and sister sitting around you. How you navigate human sexuality is either an encouragement, a discouragement, other anathema to their walk with Jesus. It's not just you. It's how you impact one another. You're not an individual freedom. Just go and do what you want. Who cares? Well, your neighbor does. Your church does. God does. This life is a life of pain and joy. Because what Paul says is he's suffering for their glory. It may look foolish to the world. And you may feel foolish. But it's actually God's wisdom on display. Let's pray. God, there are a lot of pressure points against your gospel. There are a lot of things you're seeking to do in your church that our culture and even, yes, religious subcultures are seeking to undercut the truth of your word. When we go about building a faith and understanding a walk with you off of your word, what you have spoken, would you guide us into a deeper truth? Would you anchor ourselves off of what you have said through your apostles and prophets and not by what our cultural script is? May we trust that you hold the keys to life and not our wayward opinions. May you give us a zeal to see with fresh eyes the beauty of the local church, how you see her. A mystery revealed, a place that's yes, messy, but also displays your wisdom how you're getting things done in your world. God, we trust you and we believe. Help us in our unbelief. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen.